welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Is a lawsuit against KKR, Blackstone Group, and their founders a preview of new legal challenges for managers of alternative investments? The lawsuit was filed on behalf of state taxpayers and the Kentucky Retirement System's pension plans. It alleges that the big asset managers misrepresented expensive and risky black box bundles of hedge funds as safe ways to generate high returns. But those investments contributed to the pension system's virtual insolvency while the managers pocketed excessive fees, according to the plaintiffs. My guest is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, tell us about the allegations that the fund managers were negligent and breached their fiduciary duties. Well, what the, uh, what the case is really focusing on here with regard to the hedge fund managers, and of course, these are some of the biggest names out there, uh, KKR, um, Blackstone, is that what they sold to the Kentucky Pension Fund was, in fact, a, a terribly underperforming uh, asset, or you know, this was a fund of funds, so they invested in other hedge funds that they sold one that was badly underperforming, and by charging excessive fees that they essentially misled, they took advantage of the Kentucky Pension Fund and the trustees by promising that they could help make up for some shortfalls that appeared in this fund, and frankly in just about every other pension fund after the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So it's a shot at them saying that you promised us the moon, if you will, a stable value appreciating fund that in fact has badly underperformed the market. They said they promised them absolute returns. The complaint focuses on a $1.2 billion investment on one day in August of 2011, where three hedge fund sellers sold three different black spot black box hedge fund vehicles, which the plaintiffs claim were risky, toxic investments. What do the plaintiffs have to prove here? Well, this is going to be a a difficult case for them because uh, they're going to first have to prove that there were uh, misstatements or at least that the Kentucky trustees were misled, um, and then that the investment didn't perform as promised. Now, these are very sophisticated hedge funds, and uh, when you look into the fine print here, the six-point type, uh, they put in lots of disclaimers there that say that you know the, the standard one that we hear all the time, that we hear on ads on Bloomberg, past performance is no guarantee of future returns. And so it's going to be hard to establish that level of negligence, or even, and that also there's this claim here, of breach of a fiduciary duty. And that's really going to be what's necessary to establish, uh, have any hope of establishing liability. There are lots of procedural hurdles that are going to make this a difficult case to win. The defendants have said that the allegations are baseless. What's interesting is that a spokesman for Blackstone said the Blackstone Fund referenced in the complaint delivered to the Kentucky Employees Retirement System positive returns outperforming relevant benchmarks. Are they going to try to prove that in a motion to dismiss? 
well, um, you know, I, actually, in a motion to dismiss, I suspect it will focus more on uh, not, not the underlying performance of the fund. That's something that you would usually fight out at a later stage, but more what is the underlying claim here. This is filed in the Kentucky State Court in Franklin County, uh, and the claim in the uh, complaint is that this is only alleging violations of Kentucky law, but this sounds an awful lot like a federal uh, securities fraud case under Rule 10b-5, that we were misled, breach of a fiduciary duty, that the standard claims that are made in a securities case, and if that is in fact the case, this could be shifted over to the federal court and then, unfortunately for the state, rather quickly dismissed, at least with regard to the hedge fund manager. So I think that first hurdle is not so much the that we performed well, but you're in the wrong court and you're trying to drag us into the wrong place. We deserve to be in federal court. Are, is that because Kentucky state law provides more latitude than federal securities law to hold people in control personally liable for the actions of the entities they supervise, so the plaintiffs wanted to sue in state court? Certainly, that's why they want to be in state court. And also, too, there's you know that litigators understand that there's a little bit of a home court advantage. Um, the, the judges in Kentucky are participants in this pension fund, um, but they also have the benefit of being able to bring a negligence claim, which is usually not permitted. There are some narrow exceptions there, but usually not permitted for a claim under federal law. So uh, the the state wants this, or the plaintiffs want this in state court so that they can at least preserve their negligence claim and perhaps also the breach of fiduciary duty claim uh, under state law so that they want to stay as far out of federal court as possible because there's a real risk that their claim will be dismissed. Peter, critics of hedge funds have questioned whether the fiduciary duty under federal pension law is being met in the case of funds of funds, which charge investors fees in addition to those collected by the underlying funds, and provide limited disclosure, according to the critics. What's your take on that? Well, this is interesting that, again, you know, they've, uh, the, the plaintiffs here have avoided the federal uh, fiduciary duty rule for um, pension investments, but it's the same basic thrust here that uh, any type of investment advisor must put uh, the client's interest first, and one way to show that the client's interests have not been put first is establishing that there are excessive fees. And of course, we know in the hedge fund universe, um, you know, that the standard was two and twenty-two percent of the assets plus twenty percent of the profits were being taken. Um, and in a fund of funds, that could even be multiplied. So uh, this will be interesting if the case can advance. It will be interesting as far as whether it might require the hedge funds to start limiting what they do when they deal with pension funds, or perhaps they will ignore them and drop them and go with other types of investors saying, we don't want to run, we don't want to run the risk of running afoul of the fiduciary duty rule. About 30 seconds here, Peter. Is it likely that this lawsuit will lead to others, or is this more of a standalone? Uh, certainly, I could see if it can survive the preliminary uh, efforts to throw it out, it could become a template in other states. The key being focus on your state law rather than federal law. 
Thank you, Peter, for being one of our stellar guests all year. That's Professor Peter Henning of Wayne State University Law School. Doug Jones is now officially the first Alabama Democrat elected to the Senate in a quarter century. Republican Roy Moore refused to concede his loss to Jones and filed a last-ditch lawsuit hours before the certification of the election claiming voter fraud. A judge denied his request to stop the election certification, and Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill said he's confident it was a free and fair election. We take each and every incident seriously. We investigate them. If it's warranted, we want to see those people indicted. We want to see them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Jones will be sworn in on January 3rd. Joining me is Richard Brafald, professor at Columbia Law School and an expert on election law. Rich, tell us about the substance of Moore's lawsuit. Well, I think he had, in effect, he was claiming that uh, there were predictions were that he was going to win, and he didn't win, so there must be something wrong. Uh, that was sort of one that argument. sounds very legal. Uh, and the other argument, which came a little closer, uh, where there were a series of, of that unusually high African-American voter turnout in certain areas and the presence of, of organizers, some of whom might have been out of state, uh, somehow indicated or that the election was tainted or, that, or tainted the election. In some sense, he was saying there was much higher turnout among African-Americans, and that must mean there was fraud. And on what basis did the judge dismiss Moore's complaint, that it was outrageous? <laughs> well, actually, the Alabama law provides actually a very tightly limits the ability to actually challenge uh, election results. So uh, the judge basically said he had no jurisdiction under the Alabama Code, which basically says that there's no jurisdiction to hear election challenges unless there's specific authorization, and there isn't one for U.S. tax seat. Now, so he didn't so much refute the challenges as saying there's nothing here for me to do. So the Secretary of State in Alabama said that there could be an election contest by a recount, that Moore could file right. for a recount if he chose to do that. He has to occur, do that within 48 hours of the confirmation. So what are the chances of that doing any good? It was a 21,924 so sorry. Uh, so there's two possibilities. One is there is uh, Alabama, like many other states, has provisions for an automatic recount if the margin of victory uh, is relatively narrow. This margin of victory was much bigger than that, so the automatic recount option did not exist. There is provision in Alabama law for a recount if the candidate is willing to pay for it. It's not clear that provision actually applies to a federal election uh, as opposed to state elections. So it's, although the Secretary of State has been saying this, uh, many people read the statute as saying that even that option is not available in this context. So if he were to seek a recount, it's not even clear he would be able to get it, but if he were, he'd have to pay for it and have to do it right away. So it looks like this is a done deal then. I mean, I think we're at the 99.9% mark, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's turn to another state. The tide race for Virginia's House of Delegates is turning into a mini Bush v. Gore. Are there some kinds of systemic problems with our election systems that we're having these kinds of, of problems? Well, I'm tempted to say yes and no. Yes, there are serious systemic problems in voting technology, our our vulnerability to hacking, uh, old-fashioned systems. On the other hand, sometimes you just get really, with really, 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 really close elections, even very good systems may have trouble getting to finality when you actually get down to the stage of certain ballots which are unclear. And as I understand it, uh, they're basically down to fighting about one ballot uh, in Virginia if it goes 
one way, uh, there's a clear winner. If it goes the other way, the race is tied. Uh, and having looked at you know, pictures of the ballot or having you know, seen it described, you could understand why in trying to parse the intent of the voter, uh, who we cannot ask because we don't know who the voter is, um, and we wouldn't ask anyway, um, it's unclear. But no hanging chads. As, no hanging as we... chads. This is not a case where technology failed. I mean, you could say technology failed in that it created the possibility of a ballot that could be read uh, either of two ways. This was a voter who clearly at some point marked both of the candidates and then put a line on one of them, and it's not clear whether the line meant cross out or emphasis. So, Rich, there has been so much talk this past year about election fraud. You had President Trump talking about it before the election. You have American intelligence and law enforcement officials concluding that Russia did attempt to disrupt the 2016 campaign. What does this do to the public's belief in the integrity of their vote? Well, I think the public, you know, is rightfully nervous, but it's worth separating out the two kinds of issues that you just put together. One is this notion of fraud, which most people think of as people who aren't entitled to vote, voting, or maybe voting more than once, uh, the so-called in-person voter fraud. Uh, that has been studied a lot, and there's, all, there's next to no evidence of it. There might be tiny, tiny amounts uh, t- uh, relative to the millions of votes that are cast. That's gotten a lot of the law enforcement attention, the Trump administration's attention. The other is the kind of problem of potential hacking, of potential uh, unseen disruption of ballots or the ballot counting process, especially as we move more to automatic ballot counting. That is harder to know that it's happening, and it's, it's harder to protect against. So I think it's sort of worth keeping that if we are going to start focusing on ballot security, and we should, I think it's going to be more about uh, both misconduct by election officials, which sometimes happens, and especially the integrity of the balloting system, the way in which ballots are, or votes are tabulated and stored, especially as they're more increasingly stored electronically, rather than the so-called uh, voting fraud problem of un- unqualified people showing up or showing up more than once. So we have about 30 seconds here. So very quickly, do you see more challenges to election results after the 2018 elections? I'm, I, it depends on how close the outcomes are. If we have a lot of close races and the results matter, we may very well see more. Often, I mean, the thing about the Virginia one is the control of the Virginia legislature turns on it. Um, and so that one really matters. Uh, the Moore race was a close race. He, he lost by a pretty wide enough margin, but it was we close. Will, we'll have to leave it there, but we will pick the, up with this next year, I'm sure, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafault of Columbia Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.